Well, the message begins this morning with a story that happened over a Labor Day weekend a few years ago. It's the story of two families. They were across-the-street neighbors. Let's call one the Smiths and the others the Browns. Now, the Smiths and the Browns were best friends. The fathers were best friends, and the mothers were best friends, and the children played together more like cousins than across-the-street neighbors. In fact, the moms told me one time that in the summer particularly, they didn't call the children home for lunch, they just put out the food, and whichever children were at whichever house just ate with that family that day. These families were friends. And so, over a Labor Day weekend, They always had a picnic together, but this particular Labor Day on Friday, Mr. Brown brought home a go-kart. And he said to his friend, let's recondition this go-kart, and on Monday afternoon after the picnic, we'll have some fun with it with our kids. And so all day Saturday and most of the day Sunday, they worked on that go-kart and completely reconditioned it and got it ready to go. And so on Monday, the two families got together, had their big celebration picnic, and afterwards went out in the front of their house and fired up that go-kart And the kids were taking turns riding it up and down the street. Finally, the Smith boy got on. He was about 12. Took off down the street. And no one really knows what happened, but the throttle, the accelerator, lodged full open. And he drove that go-kart into and under the back of a large pickup. The carnage was too horrific for me to describe in a public setting like this. When the emergency responders and the coroner left, the Browns went into their house, and the Smiths went into theirs, and the Smiths called me. The phone call started this way, Coach Jeff, you see I wasn't their pastor, I was their little league coach which is another sermon for another day about the importance of being involved in your community. Coach Jeff, we also know you're a minister. Can you help us? They told me their story, and I immediately went to their home. And I spent that Monday afternoon in crisis care for this family. And I asked them, what about the Browns? They said they went in their house. We haven't talked since, the, uh, since we went into our homes. So on Tuesday morning, I went back to the Smiths and worked more on the family's concerns and started planning the memorial service they wanted to have on Thursday. And I asked again, what about the Browns? They said, we haven't heard from them. We've called. They don't answer. We see no sign of life at their house. And so we waited until Wednesday. I went back to the Smiths and I said, as we made final plans for the service, have you talked to the Browns? No. And in a moment of pastoral insight, I said, come on, let's go. We walked out of their house, walked across the street, and pounded on their door. Nobody answered. Well, I'm a persistent fellow, (laughs) so I pounded again, this time louder and longer. The door cracked open, and Mr. Brown said, yes. I said, hey, it's Coach Jeff from Little League. Remember me? Yeah, sure, Coach. Can I come in? I've got the Smiths with me. He thought about it for a moment pulled open the door, and we stepped into their living room. It was obvious from the smell they hadn't left the room in two or three days. There were some scraps of food around on plates where they had tried to eat something. The kids were wrapped up, huddled in blankets around the room. 
As we stepped into the room, Mr. Smith quickly stepped around me and he said this, we need you, we're not going to make it through this if we don't hang together. What happened in that street's not your fault, it's not my fault, it's not anybody's fault. We'll never know what happened out there, but I know this, we're not going to make it if we don't hang together. And those men fell into each other's arms and started sobbing. And their wives got up and held on to the men, and they're all sobbing. And then kids start scrambling out from other blankets, and kids start coming in off the porch, and, and pretty soon I had a mob of sobbing humanity hugging each other in that living room. And in one of the few moments in my life when I had the good sense not to say anything, I just slipped back in the shadows, and I thought this. This is the greatest demonstration of forgiveness that I have ever seen. And friends... I've come a few years since that day, and I still stand here before you this morning, and I say the same thing. That is still the greatest demonstration of forgiveness I have personally ever encountered. The power of forgiveness. I want to teach you what that means from the Bible this morning, and I want to do so by telling you another story, reading you one Jesus told, to help illustrate what it means to be forgiven and to forgive others. Matthew 18, verse 23, begins this way. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Since he did not have any money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, his servant fell down before him and said, be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry... His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. This passage of Scripture and the message divides itself into two parts. They're really simple. The first part is this. We need forgiveness. In this parable, God is represented by the master, or in some translations, the king. And we are represented by this servant who's hopelessly in debt to the master. Now, the hopelessness of this situation is illustrated by how much money he owed. The Bible says 10,000 talents. Let me do the fast math for you and convert that into today's language. He owed more than 16,000 years of back salary. Now you're thinking, how could anybody let anything get that far out of hand? I, I know that's how we think. 
But remember, this is a parable. Jesus actually said these words, but Jesus made up the story to make a point. He uses in the parable what's called hyperbole or gross exaggeration or overstatement in order to make his point. So the master says, or or the servant was 16,000 years in debt to the master, a hopeless amount. And Jesus is using this parable to illustrate our situation in our relationship with God. We are in a hopeless situation before God. We have sin in our lives that stacks up to an account that is almost unimaginable and immeasurable before God, and we need forgiveness. Now, in our culture today, we'll do almost anything to avoid this reality. We try to do two main things, that, or at least two broad categories of things, to fix this issue of the fact that we somehow have wronged God by our sin and need to be forgiven. We, first of all, try to fix it by redefining God. Now, we don't have a problem with the God-being-loving part of God's character, but we certainly struggle with the fact that God is also holy. And so we try to redefine God to change him in such a way that we're not really in such debt to him because of our sin, because frankly, his standards must not be that high in the first place. We try to redefine God by saying things like, well, he's the man upstairs, or he's my co-pilot. We try to portray God as a wizened, grandfatherly type figure with a beard who's just placidly looking out of heaven on us and tolerating anything that we do. But my friends, while God is certainly loving, do not mistake this reality. God is holy. He's a holy God who has standards. He's a holy God that demands righteousness. He's a holy God that, 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 that wants people to come into relationship with him on his terms. God is holy, and you cannot redefine him and diminish his holiness in order to solve your problem of needing forgiveness. And the other thing we try to do is We try to redefine sin so we don't need to be forgiven. In our world today, what's right is, uh, we're taught that what is right for you is right for you, and what is right for me is right for me, and what is wrong for you is wrong for you, and what is wrong for me is wrong for me. We're taught that there's a great deal of subjectivity about all human behavior, and there's not anything really that's right and wrong. Now, the ludicrous nature of that argument is not too difficult to see, but nevertheless, our culture is largely deceived by this reality, or excuse me, by this way of thinking about reality that causes us to think that, there, that everything is relative. But, friend, but friends, God says some things are right and some things are wrong. You say, but isn't there some gray area about some areas of life? Absolutely, there are some areas where we need some conversation But can we just start with the Ten Commandments as Jesus interpreted them in the Sermon on the Mount and understand that some things have always been right and some things have always been wrong? Because of that reality, we need forgiveness. Now, if that were all of my message today, it would be a message that would leave us depressed and defeated. But the good news is, and you have sung it so beautifully in so many ways in the music this morning, God wants to forgive you. And he has made it possible for you to be forgiven by the death and burial and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you come to him like this person did in this story, fall down on your knees and say, God, forgive me for what I've done. I come to you and confess my sin and I ask for your forgiveness. I have great news for you this morning. God will forgive you. I can announce that to you on the authority of the word of God. 
on the testimony of my experience and on the example of many people who are sitting in this service today. If I had time today, I could start on this side of the room and go around, microphone handed to each one and say, tell me your story of how you came to understand that you needed to confess your sin to God and receive his forgiveness and how that happened in your life. And you'd hear story after story after story of how it's happened right here for people in this room. Man, that feels good, doesn't it? It feels good to know that while we need forgiveness, forgiveness is available to us from God through Jesus Christ. Man, that feels good. That's the easy part of the sermon. We need forgiveness. And it's available to us through Jesus Christ. The second part of the parable and the second part of the sermon is a bit more challenging. We must forgive others. We must forgive others. We see it in the parable. Here's what happened. This fellow who'd been forgiven called in someone who owed him some money. The Bible says 100 denarii. Let me do the math for you on that one. That's just three months' wages. Just three months. He'd been forgiven for 16,000 years of debt, and he owes owed just three months. But he called in the fellow who owed it to him, and when he couldn't pay, he said, put him into debtor's prison. No mercy will be granted to him. When the master found out about it in the parable, he called him in and in essence said, the full consequences of now what you've done will fall on you because you are unwilling to forgive others. You'll bear the consequences of that in your life too, in this context, an extreme. We must forgive others. Now may I be specific about what I'm talking about this morning? I'm not talking about forgiving someone who cuts you off in traffic or forgiving someone who messes up your brunch order later on this morning. I'm not forgiving, talking about that. I'm talking about forgiving your ex-wife who walked out on you and took your money and your children. I'm talking about you forgiving the man who date-raped you in college and got away with it. Middle schoolers, I'm talking about the cyber bullies who are making your life miserable on social media. I'm talking about the racist boss who kept you from getting the promotion you needed to advance your career and take care of your family. I'm talking about you forgiving your business partner who backstabbed you and stole your company, left you to start over talking about you forgiving your drunken father who walked out on your family and left you growing up in poverty or your critical mother who so verbally abused you growing up that you, th- you came to adulthood questioning your own value and legitimacy. Listen, I'm talking about you forgiving the people who've scarred you so deeply that you have carried around that wound for 10 or 20, 30 years. And you've felt what they've done to you with such an intensity that it has marred your relationships, it's distorted your choices, and it's kept you from having the fulfilled and meaningful life that you've always wanted. I'm talking about forgiving people like that. 
Now, when you forgive them like that, you'll forgive them in the way that God has forgiven you. Now, let's not be mistaken here. None of us are God, and none of us can completely forgive in the way that God forgives us, but we can approximate it. We can move toward it. We can learn from how God forgives us as we learn what it means to forgive others. So let me remind you, first of all, that God forgives people who don't deserve it. One of the myths that keeps us from forgiving others is, in our pride, we want them to ask us for forgiveness. But people who've already died, or people who've moved away and you'll never see again, will never ask you for forgiveness. You can grant forgiveness whether it's ever requested. You can extend it to another person even though they don't deserve it. That's what God did for you. He extended forgiveness toward you when you didn't deserve it. And then God forgives people completely, and as I've already said, that's tough for us to do, but we can work toward that goal. We forgive people completely like God does. You know the verse, finish it for me. The Bible says God separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. You know the verse. God puts our sin so far from him, it's like the east is from the west. He's separating himself from it. He forgives us so completely. I know one time I wronged some people in my church while I was a pastor. Let's don't go into the details about that. You're thinking pretty highly of me right now. I've been introduced as a seminary president in the Southern Baptist Convention. But there was a day when I was a pastor that I did something I'm not proud of, and I had to go to that family and ask them to forgive me. And when I did, the man said, well, it's easy to forgive but it's not so easy to forget. And I left that conversation thinking, somehow I think we missed something there. (laughs) When you forgive, you forgive people who don't deserve it. And you forgive them completely as best you can, putting it out of your mind and as far away from you as you can, realizing that is over and forgotten. And then you forgive people lavishly. You know, when I talk about forgiving others, you say, well, I might give them a little bit of forgiveness. You know, in my wife's kitchen, she's got a little baking drawer, and in there she's got all these little utensils, and one of them is an adjustable measuring spoon, and that thing will adjust down to a quarter teaspoon. Do you know how little amount a quarter teaspoon is? Man, she did that little bitty tiny thing, just drop it in the bowl, just like that. Not too much to it. And that's how you want to give out forgiveness. You say, well, all right, I'll give them a little bit. But because of what they did to me, that's all they get. And you just take a little bit like this. That's all they get. Just a little drip. Just a little drip. Just a little drip. That's all they get. Just a little drip. Let me tell you how God forgives you. God has two great big ladles. He has one in each hand. He dips them in a great big vat of forgiveness and walks up and just douses you in it. And he looks at you and said, think I might have missed a spot. And he goes back and he dips it in again. And he comes forward and he just coats you in it one more time. God forgives lavishly. Do you understand that? That's what the death of Jesus Christ illustrates for us, that God lavishly pours out forgiveness on us. So when you forgive others, as God has forgiven you, you will forgive people that don't deserve it, and you'll forgive them completely, and you'll forgive them lavishly, pouring out forgiveness into their lives. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but if I do that, that means they get away with what they did to me. Well, that's because you're confusing forgiveness with the absence of consequences, and those two things are not necessarily the same. You see, when you forgive another person, you do not absolve them of the consequences of what they've done and how God and others may cause them to bear the pain of those consequences. But in giving, but in granting forgiveness to someone, while you do not mitigate the consequences of what has happened in their lives, you give up, get this phrase, you give up your right to revenge in the situation. 
You give up your right to revenge in the situation. And you allow God and others to bear, to, to, God and others to put upon them whatever consequences of their actions may be appropriate, but you give up the right to revenge in the situation. I was preaching on a similar theme, and a woman came up to me and said, you want me to forgive people? And I said, yeah, I do. She said, you want me to forgive my brother who stole $300,000 from our family, or from our parents. I said, yes, I do, but tell me about the situation. She said, well, my brother uh, was responsible for my parents as they aged, and uh, as their mental capacities diminished, he was siphoning money out of their accounts, and we documented when they died that he had sold $300,000. And I turned him over to the local authorities, and he's being prosecuted, and his trial is coming up, and I'm fairly certain he'll be convicted. You want me to forgive him for that? I said, yes, I do. She said, well, then he gets away with everything. I said, no, he doesn't. He'll likely be convicted and go to jail. She said, I'm really confused. If you want me to forgive him, then why do you still want that to happen? I said, because those are the consequences of his actions. And then she asked me this question. Well, then what would forgiveness look like? And I said, it will look like this. You will go and visit him in prison. It's not removing the consequences of his actions. It's you giving up your right to revenge in the situation. He'll never have a chance again to handle anybody's money, and you should make sure he never does. But your vengeance in the situation is not going to help you any more. It's not going to help you resolve this situation in any healthy way. Another situation, when I was a pastor, a man came to us and said, I'm out of prison, I'm a convicted sex offender, I'd really like to become a part of your church. Well, I worked with him for a while and said, you can come to our church. We know you've become a Christian. We see a definite trend, a a definite indication of discipleship in your life, and we want to honor that, and we want to support you in it, but you have to understand something. Every moment that you're on our property, every single regulation of your parole is in effect. And if you come to our church, we'll forgive you, but we'll also hold you accountable to the consequences of your actions. And he said, I'll take that, and I have a good story to tell on that. He did follow through in a beautiful way with that. We weren't going to remove the consequences of his actions, but we weren't going to vengefully hold against him something that had been forgiven. When you forgive others, they don't get away with anything, but they do get released from your right to revenge in the situation. And you say, well, those are good stories, but those people had their consequences. What about the person who wronged me, who's getting away with it today? No one's holding them accountable. I remind you that as Christians, we take the long view. And the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that God holds everyone ultimately accountable for their actions. And so you can take the long view that whatever needs to be made right in your life will be made right by God in a much better way than you could have ever made it right on your own. Do you understand that this morning? Yeah. And then finally, it's important to forgive others because when you do so, it actually ends the control the other person has over you. You see, when you refuse to forgive someone, here's what happens. You think about it all the time. You think about what they've done to you all the time. You operate your life in the shadow of what happened to you. It defines who you are. You lay awake at night. You can't sleep because you're thinking about the revenge you'd like to take. You're driving in the car and you're upset and you miss two exits and you wonder, where am I? Why? Because you've been daydreaming about what you'd like to do to get even with the person. 
You're trying to have a relationship with someone. But every time you do, your relationships are poisoned. Why? Because you bring the bitterness of a past relationship into the present relationship. You can't move forward because of what the person in the past has done to you that you keep carrying forward. Am I communicating? You're daydreaming. You're losing sleep. You're poisoning relationships. You're carrying this baggage of unforgiveness in your life and it has control over you. You think that this situation that has happened is actually harming the person who injured you or who harmed you or who hurt you, but it's not. It's actually harming, hurting, hindering you. And so until you forgive that person and release that in your life, you will not be able to move forward, freed from what happened to you. Well, seminary presidents do a lot of different things. And one of the things we do is uh, periodically we, we take trips to Israel and other places. And a few years ago, our seminary took a trip to Israel, and we take our donors and friends and students, whoever wants to go, but mostly it's designed to take donors and friends and build relationships, and you know how all that works. Well, I took a trip to Israel, and frankly, the, the thing got out of hand. A lot of people wanted to go. So we wound up with two buses. Now, this is a side note, but we now have a law of the president at Gateway Seminary, one bus, one bus. But back then, I didn't know that law, so I had two buses. And that trip, we decided to go to two countries. We decided to go to Jordan and tour there for a while and then go into Israel. Well, it seemed like such a good idea until we got to the Jordanian-Israeli border. They do not trust each other, and they will not let a Jordanian bus come into Israel. And Israel will not let a, or Jordan won't let an Israeli bus come into Jordan. So we pull up with two buses on the Jordanian side, and we have to go in Israel. And here's how you do it. The first thing you do is you take everything off the bus. Everything. And you take it through airport-style metal detectors. And then you walk at about a 50 to 75-yard path across a bridge... And then you put it through Israeli metal detectors in case you built a bomb while crossing the bridge. And then they put it on an Israeli bus and off you go. Well, I got off the bus, I unloaded my baggage, I went through the metal detectors, I crossed the bridge, I went through the metal detectors, I loaded my stuff on the bus, I turned around and I looked behind me and I see large numbers of, guess who goes on these kinds of trips? Senior adults. Over on the other side of that bridge, wondering how they're going to get all that luggage from one side to the other. Well, back across the bridge I go. About the 10th trip I made across that bridge, hauling a bunch of baggage for some blue-haired ladies that couldn't handle it on their own, I thought to myself, I am ready to start jettisoning baggage off the bridge. And that silly story is an example of exactly what some of you have been doing all your lives. The pain that you're carrying because of unforgiveness in your life, you keep offloading it from one bus and dragging it over to the next one. So whether it's a new job, a new house, a new relationship, a new car, whatever it is, you keep dragging the old into the new and it distorts and poisons everything. So this morning, 
I want to ask you very simply, toss the baggage off the bridge. Would you bow your heads together with me this morning? With our heads bowed this morning, I'd like to offer you just a moment to pray in response to this message. First of all, if you're here today and you have never received forgiveness from God for your sin by confessing your sin and asking, him to, asking Jesus Christ to come into your life, you can do that right now. It's a simple prayer, something like this. Put it in your own words, but just pray, God, I know I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection makes my forgiveness possible. I'm not sure I understand how all that works, but I know I need it. Come into my life and forgive me today. If you're praying a prayer like that in your own words or just in some way crying out to God, I implore you, urge you, encourage you, come and talk with Pastor Cody. Come and talk with another church member here that you trust. Let them help you to begin a new life of following God and this new forgiveness that he's granted you. But if you're here today and you've already done that, and I've been addressing some issue in your life about unforgiveness, I wonder if you'd deal with that right now. You say, well, I, I don't know if I, oh, you know, oh, you know. You don't have to think about it long. You know who I'm talking about. That person that offended you, hurt you, wronged you, they're already in your mind. They were in your mind while I was preaching. You know exactly who we're talking about. You may need to pray something like this. Father, you know what this person, call their name, you know what this person did to me. And I want to forgive them this morning. I pray you'll help me forgive them even though they don't deserve it and to forgive them completely and lavishly and to move on in my life freed from this baggage. And it may be a process. You may have to work on it a few days. But you're determined to leave this worship service today forgiving the person who has wronged you and has scarred your life for these years. Heavenly Father, thank you for forgiving me through Jesus Christ and giving me new life because of that. And Father, I thank you that the scars of my childhood and some rough spots along the way where people have wronged me, you have helped me to forgive and to be liberated from those, the effects of those injuries and those hurts. Help me, Father, to continue to be a forgiving man. And I pray for people who are hearing this message this morning that are struggling with forgiving someone who's wronged them horribly. Give them the grace and the courage to forgive them today. And liberate us from the pain of unforgiveness and help us live in the power of forgiveness. And we receive it today in Jesus' name. Amen.